Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. My guest today is Kelvin Chua, the founder of Synergy. For those of you who don't know, Synergy is a digital asset exchange based in Malaysia and is one of only four registered with the Local Securities Commission. Thank you very much for being here, Kelvin. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Very nice to meet you in Penang uh, last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For for anyone that doesn't know, Penang is a phenomenal place to go to. Great food, great weather. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Calvin, one one of the things that I always ask every every founder that I speak yeah. to is I, I'm always curious about the the origin story. So, take yeah. me back. You know, you're you're in the you're in the digital asset space. Yeah. How did you launch upon? This endeavor. What was what was the initiation of the idea, and where yeah. where did it start? Okay, so uh, everything started uh, early two o one seven. At that time, I was in a very different business, right? Uh, I was in boutique hospitality because Penang had just obtained the UNESCO listing in two thousand and eight. So there was obviously we felt that there was actually a room to create boutique homestays, right? Uh, heritage, boutique hotels, etc. Uh, for people who want to experience uh, the heritage site of, of Penang. So we started the first five uh, boutique homestay in Penang. Um, and it was quite amazing because like uh, when we first started, we would have uh, MTV DJs staying with us, you know, <laughs> and, and, and when these guys show up, uh, we would be quite, uh, quite surprised. Uh, but also, I think if you go a little bit back, um, I, I, was, I, I, I was actually in New York. Uh, that was where I started my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've had a, a pretty, pretty long career in capital markets. So I, I started working uh, in Fleet Bank, which was eventually acquired by the Bank of America. Mm-hmm. So I started working on the help desk and then eventually uh, moved uh, my way up to become a trader and eventually a market maker for the bank. So I've always had that foundation in finance. And then when I came back from New York, this was when I was about 25, 26, uh, a few, uh, a couple of high school friends of mine got together and wanted to start a software development business. Uh, so in total, there was four, four of us from the same high school. So two were, was the, the in, in a way we funded the, the business and the other two person uh, ran the business. Five years on, we, uh, they decided that they, they all wanted to move on to their own thing. And, and eventually we all parted ways. Right? So, so one of this guy that was uh, involved in this uh, software development company, it was called Omenware, uh, he came to me in early 2017 and he said, I think this is a good time to start a crypto exchange. And I had heard about Bitcoin, but uh, never really researched into it. So, so I thought, okay, la, I mean, let me, you know, I, I normally do like uh, a morning runs uh, before I start work anyway. So I said, okay, I just use the time that I spend on the treadmill to, to look up uh, YouTube on what Bitcoin is. 
And two, three months later, I think like, like most people who discover crypto, right, you get a sense that once you understand how it works, the blockchain technology, etc., you have a feeling that, hey, this could potentially be like a global currency, right? And, and that's when it like all of a sudden it clicks and then you think that, wow, this is something that's going to change the world. So I went through the same thing. And then uh, when I discovered what it was and having that foundation in finance, understanding how exchanges work, I, I, I got really excited. So I went up to some family and friends and raised uh, about 1.25 million ringgit from them. Um, most of them came in because they said to me that I've never seen you this excited before about uh, an idea, you know. So we started uh, 2017 and we, we were trading mostly, right, at the, at the beginning because we weren't really sure which platform to build. I think if you go back far enough, there's always that question that should you have built a peer-to-peer trading platform such as local Bitcoins or would you, is it better to build a centralized exchange, right? And the, the, the answer to that is if you think that regulate, regulations are going to like prevail and it's going to be in every jurisdiction everywhere in the world, it makes sense to go with a centralized exchange model because beyond us collecting a fee for matching trades, we are also the KYC point, right? This is where you come and do KYC. So you know that the counterparty of the trade uh, is someone that you can trust is a real person. And, and hopefully uh, like with the sanction checks that we're doing, uh, there's no terrorists on the other side, et cetera. Um, so when we first did it, we, we felt, okay, we, we actually, the first version of Synergy was actually built as a peer-to-peer uh, trading platform. But then subsequently in December 2018, when, when crypto was prescribed as security and the purview fell into Securities Commission, um, we, we felt that, okay, this is the turning point. So, so we then got the team together. Uh, this, we were given only about two months to submit for an application. Uh, it was a very tight period. Um, and we, we came up with like a, a three, 400 page application and then we submitted it. And if you did not submit the application in within that, uh, within that deadline, you would have to cease and decease your operation. So I think in total, like from what I know about 20 over companies submitted for it, the number could be higher. Mm. And then subsequently some, somewhere in June, you know, like, uh, we received a phone call, you know, uh, that we got the conditional approval. And obviously that's the start of everything, right? We had to, we were given nine months to, to put everything in place uh, before we did our final go live interview, which actually took place on 31st March, 2020, right at the, the start of uh, the, the first movement control order, right? So this is the beginning of COVID. And then uh, we got the official letter and then uh, on April Fool's Day is, is, is like what, essentially what we shared on social media that this is not an April April Fool's Day joke. We're actually going live. <laughs> a bit of interesting timing there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting timing for sure. <laughs> yeah. How how was that process in the beginning with the 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 regulatory environment? Because I, I imagine when and 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 I'm guessing at this, but most jurisdictions are still trying to figure out their regulations. You see new ones coming out of Singapore. The U.S. is still trying to figure out theirs. Yeah. When, when, it, when in, the, in that beginning process, there's a bit of a learning curve for the regulators as well, because they're trying to figure out what's appropriate from a, from a requirement standpoint as well. How yeah. was that process? Was, were the regulations fully formed or how were those interactions with the operators in the space between yeah. uh, the Securities Commission and yourself? I think um, I think with the Securities Commission, right? 
um, at least with the team that we dealt with, right? Um, I'm not sure if you know, but there's been senior man- management changes at SC mm-hmm. uh, mid of this year, right? So chairman stepped down and a few other people left as well. So we were communicating more with the, 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 older, the older team there. They were very progressive. Um, they were very progressive to the point that I still remember when we started the business in mid-2017, one of the first meetings that I, I got was with the, uh, the digital team at, at SC. And the, we, we, we started the business in June, July 2017. We reached out to them in August 2017, and they were, they were kind enough to actually want, wanted to, to actually meet with us, right? And I went there not, not knowing like who I was going to meet, but it was a very formal session. There were quiz and you know, their tariffs on the table, etc. And then when I left the meeting, I realized that these were all the important people there. So say, they obviously knew about the asset class. They knew that uh, they knew about the potential, etc. But I think they they were it wasn't the right time for them to, to start anything, you know. And and I, I think that was probably because. Cryptocurrency, think about that word, right? Cryptocurrency. So in Malaysia, you, we are a bit different compared to Singapore when you have the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which sort of regulates everything. Mm-hmm. So in Malaysia, the Securities Commission sort of regulate things from a securities perspective, and then the central bank regulate uh, currencies from a central bank perspective. So, so they took a dual regulatory approach to, to this asset class. So, so Bank Negara, which is central bank, will regulate more on the currency side of things. And then uh, that's where they will make the calls, whether stable coins are permissible to trade, etc. And then SC will regulate it more from the securities uh, side. Um, so the, the, I would say that they were, they were very progressive. They, they spoke to us. They wanted to know things like, you know, what do you think is the right uh, paid up capital to set for this industry? And I remember I, I told them that, look, if you put this figure, it would be too high. Maybe a lot of people won't be able to even apply for the license, right? Mm. And then they said, yes, but then in a way, you're also making it such that only companies that can afford to be in this business will, will run the business, not any small, mid-sized companies, right? Uh, so I would say that they're very progressive. Uh, they uh, And engaging you know you could always get a meeting with them and and they would always be willing to, to hear you out you know so so i find i find that that was one of the the things that really impressed me about about sc okay okay and how long did the process take from start to finish from you know you 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 were given this this short window in order to submit your application but once that application went in you said you got the news within just a few months Within four months, so so the um, the the application we were given two months, right? The moment crypto was uh, so so we actually started reporting to Bank Negara as a reporting entity for crypto, and this was all voluntary. Meaning mm-hmm. you reported stuff to them, you send them Excel sheets on the volumes that you did, etc. And it was quite funny because in the early days, like we we call it the hit list, right? The reporting entity list is actually the hit list because it's where banks will go to find companies who are in the crypto space. And then if they find out that you have an account with them, they'll shut you down immediately. <laughs> so so when, when, when it was prescribed as security and, and SC sort of regulated this asset class, um, there was, uh, we were, I think the, the, the window that we had was about two months. And, and this was in December, 2018. And obviously, as you know, um, I'm Chinese and, and Chinese New Year normally falls around February, right? Yep. So we, we still we still went around and had our celebration and so on. But then when we came back to the office, we had 14 days 
to, to put together the, the application, uh, which we managed to do and, and submitted, like I think at like 11 p.m. before the, <laughs> before the cutoff time, you know, and then uh, subsequently after that, like, like I said to you, right, normally I go for my morning runs. The following day, I went for a morning walk instead because I was thinking, damn, if we don't get this license, I'm going to have to, you know, really rethink uh, about uh, letting people go and, and you know, like basically just uh, move on to, to, to something else. Uh. So, yeah. so four months later, somehow, thankfully, touch wood, you know, fingers crossed, we, we got the phone call, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Have, have, the, have the regulations evolved much since that date as the knowledge base amongst the regulators as there's been a lot of news within the crypto space as well that's kind of inspiring regulators to do more. How have you seen that impact your business and the regulations? Um, <clears throat> so I think this year was, was clearly a very interesting year with what happened, uh, starting with uh, Terra Luna, right? Mm -hmm. uh, algorithmic stable coin that obviously collapsed and then it created that domino effect for hedge funds like Three Hours Capital, Asset lending platform Celsius, and and the most recent one was the most surprising for everyone, which is uh, FTX. Mm. Um, I think from from the from the get go, from the very beginning, uh, SC was always very conservative about listing new tokens, etc. <clears throat> so uh, on our platform, we currently have only Bitcoin and Ethereum, but uh, the new tokens that are permissible to trade will be listed uh, first quarter twenty twenty three. So if you think about it, right, by them being conservative on these things, it actually protected the, the, the retail market, you know. Uh, I, I don't know many people personally uh, who, who have exposure to, to Daranula. You definitely won't have exposure if you came, came through our platform. Uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, new models or, or what are the new things that they are doing, um, before I go into that, I, I, let me just point out that in sure. Malaysia, the, regulator, the regulations are a bit different because we, we actually use a, a trustee, right? So a trustee is actually independent, uh, they are third party, and at the same time, they are also regulated. If I remember correctly, I think the whole Malaysia, there's about 14 regulated trustees. So Maybank has their own trustee, Mbank also has their own trustee, and then there are the, the smaller ones, right? So we use universal trustee. Um, and we, we have to use them because uh, one of the requirements to obtaining this uh, registration to be a DEX was to keep client funds segregated. Now, in different jurisdictions, uh, you are actually allowed to commingle client funds. And, and those things, uh, like, I, I kind of, uh, it, it, a bit, it shocks me a little bit, right, that how can companies actually commingle client funds with their own company assets? Because uh, you know, you'll you be paying company salary from the same account, you know, like, you know your vendors, etc. right? <clears throat> so how is using a, a regulated trustee different? Well, number one, the bank account doesn't belong to us, right? So the, the bank account that we use to pay staff salary, pay our rental, etc., that, that is actually Synergy's corporate account. So uh, uh, a client trust account is actually, it belongs to the trustee. So, so as an example, um, fund houses like public mutual and all that, they will normally house client assets under a trust account. Mm -hmm. So a trust account, number one, segregates client monies, right, from the company's money. So it's clearly separated. So well, what happens when, let's say, a client just deposits? We have online viewing rights, so we can actually go into the online banking to check whether deposits coming in are first-party transfer to make sure that they're not third-party transfer. So we can actually do approval. 
But when it comes to withdrawing funds, uh, that withdrawing rights belong to the trustee. So normally what we need to do is we need to email them and say, okay, here's the list of clients that wants to do withdrawal. They'll go through the list and then say, okay, well, it doesn't look like there's any conflict here. These are all their clients. It's not synergy to synergy. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they'll approve it. So, so I think looking back, uh, these are clearly the controls that, that, that benefited uh, the industry and hopefully will, will, will set the, will set the, the, will be the foundation of how, how things need to be done going forward, right? In, in light of what happened at FTX. Is, is this trustee relationship primarily associated with the fiat currency that they that they have on your platform to where there's a dedicated bank account in order to house it? Or does it also apply to when they, they've acquired Bitcoin or ETH or, yeah. or, or which, whichever? It's, it's a very good question. So it started out being a fiat uh, mm. custody only, right? Uh, but then SC wanted the custody, uh, the trustee to also play a part in, in, the, in the role of the custody of digital asset. So in the early days, obviously, uh, these are traditional trustees, right? Their clients are, are, are like mutual funds, you know, yeah. uh, probably the more forward clients are e-wallet operators, etc. Mm-hmm. So so when, when we told them about crypto, they obviously, they were very new to it. So we actually had to like show them how to do it, like how you can use this uh, program and then, uh, you know, you take one key, I take one key, uh, we use this uh, laptop that never touches the internet uh, to ensure that, you know, it's air gap, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we show them how to do it. Yeah, we we had to show them how to do it um, uh, for for Bitcoin and then for Ethereum, it's a different software entirely. Mm. And then it's funny that they're now charging us for it. So, so, so they you talk them and now they're charging you. Yeah, it, it's not a, a high fee, but obviously we have to pay them to to pay the the, the yeah. role, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so the, we keep a, a big portion of uh, uh, the crypto asset actually in cold storage. So, as a rule of thumb, maybe just use twenty five percent, seventy five percent. So, twenty five percent is on the hot wallet. Seventy five percent is in cold storage. So, cold storage is obviously. Uh, unhackable, right? And then right. we will daily do a rebalancing, right? We will check and see if there's not enough funds in the uh, hot wallet, then we'll rebalance out. But when we rebalance out, it's important to note that uh, we are one of the signing party. The trustees, the other signing party. So that means mm-hmm. we can't just move the funds without their consent. So, right. so it creates that check and balance, right? For, 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 for the business, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So let, let me switch gears a little bit. And so when you when you're when you're in process of launching, instead of setting aside the regulatory standpoint, yeah. when you're simply in the process of trying to acquire uh, yeah. users to come on, uh, whether they're actively trading, if they're hodling, just to simply utilize the exchange, how do you get word out amongst the population? Yeah that this exchange is here, that it should be the preferred option, et cetera. Yeah. How do you build the reputation? We, so, so as you pointed out, uh, originally there were three companies with the, uh, that, that could do the business. Sure. Uh, the fourth company was only given uh, the green light, I believe, uh, sometime in, in July of, of last year. Okay. Um, so the, everyone kind of does it their own way, I would say, because obviously you, you in a way, I guess, having your license and registration in a market like Malaysia, you're, you're in a way insulated, right? Because 
why you can't get a ringgit Malaysia account outside of Malaysia because you're a capital control country, right? But in a way also you're you're in you're immediately competing with three other companies, right? Um, so so for us, uh, normally what we do is uh, we use a little bit of social media for marketing. Uh, we don't we don't use like uh, the, the big ticket items like billboards, etc. because those are obviously very high budget. Uh, and we focus on partnerships, right? So we, we go out to the people who are willing and, and, and willing to consider a partnership with us uh, that has to, that, that client base. And then, um, you know, we, 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 get, uh, we get consent from the regulators to actually partner with them. And, and so far, that's, that's been a, a good angle for us. Like, you know, like essentially not going head on with, with, with the other uh, players directly, um, focusing on the partnership that can bring us uh, the user base. Uh, I'll give you an example, uh, FA Advisory from Singapore. Mm-hmm. They are the largest independent financial advisory network in Singapore, they are our partner. Um, a few months ago, we also got a partnership approved with UOB KHEN. So for those of you who don't know, UOB KHEN is Southeast Asia's largest brokerage. Uh, I think in Malaysia alone, they have uh, over 100,000 uh, trading account. Uh, so, so these are uh, the, the areas that we focus on. Uh, truth, truth or name, synergy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. And do you do you find that the perception of the space has evolved? And I, I ask that because I remember the early days when when I kind of went down the rabbit hole and got interested. Yeah. The first thing people would say is, "Ah, that's for money laundering, the illicit <laughs> trade, you know, all of those things." Yeah. Which to me didn't make sense because all transactions are public. There's yeah. they're they're pseudonymous, but it's all yeah. public. So it never really made sense that it would be. But have you seen that perception in Malaysia in the early days, and have you seen it evolve? Yeah, I mean to, to add to that also, right? Is that like you you this money laundering happen even with traditional traditional finance? Um, oh yeah. Doing it's this, time, it happens, right? We all yeah. know it happens, right? People still do, uh, you know, movements of cash. You know, um, you know. I think it's an open secret that if you go to money changes, uh, they can do hawala transfer, right? Yeah. You know, and, and you can't really stop these things, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, there is a demand for it, right? And why mm-hmm. is there a demand for it? So let's not talk about the the black stuff, like the drug stuff and all that. Let's talk about uh, the business perspective, right? Like. People use this this channel sometimes because they save money, right? Mm. You go through the bank, the spreads are wide, <laughs> you know. So if you go through money changes and it can help you save maybe half a percent or something, that's an additional margin to, to, to your business, right? So so these things will always exist. And and when people use crypto for 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 money laundering, I think uh, like you say, right? There's a trail for everything, you know. Even Bitfinex that hacked, like they were able to track down. This person eventually. So, so it, 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 this is why. Um, I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's a it's a it's something that people always say. But but if you think about the true potential of the business, yeah, maybe a part of it is is that. But there's a huge part of the business that um, a lot of people from uh, capital markets believe that maybe this is the new asset class, the blockchain technology that could power the, the future of capital markets, right? Because let, let's be honest, right? Why is this the only asset class that trades 24 hours a day and seven days a week? Yeah. It's because the settlement layer is, 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 is a blockchain technology, right? You, if you come to an office in Penang versus going to a trading floor, 
the trading floor is probably half the size of the back office where you know you still have a lot of people, etc. Right? Contra notes that needs to be sent out to clients because you know like, I need to collect payment, etc. Mm-hmm. But in crypto, if you come to our office in Penang, is 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 there's no back office, you know, like we run an exchange and there's no back office, right? So so that, there's something there like, that I think people should should open up their eyes to, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot, become- <laughs> a lot of the infrastructure has now become a public good because it, yeah. it is it is the blockchain. It is it is on chain. So it's yeah. it's really eliminated layers of middlemen uh, to an right. extent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that's <clears throat> that is like the 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 best way to actually describe this this asset class, right? Because it's it is a decentralized asset class. No one controls it, you know. And because of that, if you think about it, like even for an exchange such as us, because there's less intermediaries, there are things that we can do that we could never do in traditional finance. Like if you came to Synergy and then you place a limit buy order, um, and someone sells to you, you actually earn a trading rebate. Why can't you do that using a traditional brokerage model? Because there's the brokerage that earns something, there's the clearinghouse that earns something, everybody earns something along the way. But in yeah. crypto, because it's a decentralized asset class, a lot of these intermediaries don't exist anymore. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm curious, when, when, you, when you look at the space, yeah. what do you see as the biggest threats to broader adoption because I, I i can't remember the statistic but i i want to say it's somewhere in like the single digits or maybe low double digits of population that is that is adopting um but when you look at like the risks towards broader adoption what what do you what do you think is the is the biggest hurdles that the overall crypto space needs to overcome i think definitely um the bad actors, you know, mm. definitely the bad actors, because you 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 sort of um, like like I'm I'm in Penang, right? So so I think um, we were at one point quite a hot spot for a lot of these Ponzi schemes, right? Mm. Uh, we call them money games, and and a lot of these guys were using crypto as a transaction layer because uh, it was easy like, to, to to move things around without uh, being going through the banking channel. Yeah. And and when when things like this happen, it sort of like create an association to Bitcoin. It's not uh, it's not. I mean, these guys use maybe let's say their own private token, private blockchain, etc. Uh, but you know the the perception is that oh, is uh, Bitcoin is like this, right? Bitcoin is like this, right? So so we have to sort of go out there and re-educate the masses, right? That that's not really Bitcoin. That's the company's private token private blockchain, Bitcoin doesn't work that way, you know, and, and you have to, you know, like basically educate, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and what about when, when at some point, you know, you see, you see across the globe, a lot of countries are starting to experiment with their own yeah. digital currencies. Yeah. How do you see the impact of that? Um, do you, do you welcome it? Would it be something that you would be keen to have on your, on, on the exchange as well? <clears throat> Definitely, definitely. I'll give you one one good example, right? So when we when we started the, the exchange, uh, this was in April 2020, right? Uh, in the first uh, movement control order, every deposit that you do into the exchange using crypto asset, Bitcoin, Ethereum, everything is recorded automatically, right? Mm-hmm. 
So every deposit, every withdrawal that you do, everything is, is happening in an automated manner, right? There's no human intervention, right? We recently only enabled uh, automated fiat deposit. Why is that? Why could we have done it for crypto sooner? Why couldn't we do it for fiat sooner? Because you needed a bank to give out a banking API. How many banks in Malaysia have a banking API? I mean, not many, you know, like, yeah. and we were quite fortunate because we, we use UOB Bank and they recently, I think last year, they, they announced that they were launching a banking API and we were selected as one of the key bits to, to, to test it out. So, so if you imagine if you have a CBDC in Malaysia uh, that could, you know, that I could use to, to send funds to you, etc. Mm-hmm. You don't need to wait for all the banks to come out with their banking API. You just use this new transaction layer, right? And this new transaction layer can, can be banking APIs out there and, yeah. and, and you know and and be instant, be you know, having the record, you know, which is immutable, etc. All these things are, you know. Okay. Okay. I, I would I wonder, and this this might this might get a get a little bit uh, wonky on the on the economics of it. Yeah. But you know, Malaysia has currency control, so there's there's a there's a number of restrictions that are in place in in, in respect to the the local currency. Yeah, and you know, you see it in many places in the world where they're quite sensitive around that, and part of it is because they're policy tools, whether monetary policy or fiscal policy, yeah. they utilize the currency and those sort of levers. Yeah. But when you talk about an international currency like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum that has no government affiliation yeah. <clears throat> i've heard people make the argument that they that eventually it could be seen as a threat to their power and yeah. that the that one of the biggest risks is the potential for them to kind of regulate it out of existence yeah do you do you think that that's completely misplaced i i, I don't i don't know whether whether or not we need to get too technical on it but do you think that's yeah. a misplaced concern I think I think there's room for for both to exist, right? Mm. Meaning, uh, you, you have you have you have there's room for both to exist. So for those people who still prefer to do not have that sort of exposure, uh, want to remain in the fiat channels, etc., they they can continue to use that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like for for us, if you look at the data that we have on exchange, the majority of people who who buys crypto assets are early to mid-30s, right? So yeah, the millennials, right? Mm-hmm. And and these guys are also the people who are very into gaming, they're into the metaverse thing, they're into NFTs and all these things. Yeah. And and maybe in their world in the future, right? Is is the fair the fair option will be an option that they may not want full exposure to. They may want to have a uh, 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 some crypto exposure because uh, they could use this maybe in the metaverse, etc., and yeah. and it could have its own value and, and exist there, you know. Uh, so, and I think in terms of um, government stuff, like some people say it's a threat to the government and so on. I I don't see that. Um, I don't see that particularly so only because, like, uh, if the asset class continues to grow. Right. And and one day, like and we're seeing it now, like two years ago, if you tried to talk to the CEO of a bank, crypto, sorry, no interest, right? Mm. Today he will at least meet you. And and there are there are, there are definitely initiatives coming, right? Like uh, certain like like uh, with financial institutions that are working on uh, something like a structured product, let's say, right? And these these 
these things will be uh, a way for the masses to participate in, in an alternative asset class like crypto asset. So if you so if you can see things from our perspective, if you sort of know who we're talking to in a way, you could see that adoption is coming, right? It's coming, but maybe it's not going to happen in, in, in next year, but maybe it'll take two, three years to, to play out. And eventually, uh, when it grows big enough, then you know the, the, the ultimate uh, institutional players such as a sovereign wealth fund will also get, get exposure to it. But at this stage, at this early stage, I think the foundations are still being put in place. Like I think with what happened with FTX, obviously there's gonna it's gonna call into question a lot about how this custodian solution works, right? And, and then if you can solve this thing, then I think an asset manager would be more comfortable to, to actually um, you know, to hold uh, a position in, in crypto asset as well, right? Because like, I, I want to know that, like, if you're a fund manager, how, how do you tell your clients that money just went missing? It's not so straightforward, you know? You need to know that I've done what I could to ensure that the money could not have gone missing, you know? <laughs> All the checkboxes have been ticked, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, part of it is kind of hard to, to understand. I mean, the FTX one is quite interesting because of the spider web of how things ended up playing out. The exchange by itself was actually very successful and very oh. profitable. <laughs> there was all this other stuff of related activities that got them into got them in, got them into trouble and caused some of the bad behavior there yeah. on their part. Yeah. But, because because things happen on chain, yeah. I mean the, the the biggest challenge is the commingling of funds. Yeah, because if if you're keeping separate um, wallets, separate keys for each individual yeah. account, it's all on chain. It, it can be it can be done in a very transparent manner. Yeah, correct. <clears throat> it can be done in a transparent manner. So it's you know like FTX was a good exchange. Like mm-hmm. they had good tech, you know, um, they had really good tech. Um, in fact, I think after, after, after they, they filed for chapter 11 and, you know, we, we had to go back to some of the other exchanges, the older exchanges that we were using, we felt that <laughs> we're back in time, you know, <laughs> yeah. they had good tech and they were making money. Uh, so I, I think the, the part that I'm still trying to figure out was why did they have to do it this way, right? Because they were profitable, you know, eventually yeah. if they needed to launch a, a $1 billion fund, they could have done it just given time, you know, like mm. they, they didn't need to be, they just needed time, right? They, they would get there eventually, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it from my understanding of it, it's it's the other activities. It's it's the hedge fund arm that ended up accumulating losses and then they just yeah. like when when you when you end up digging yourself a hole and you try and get out of it, you end up digging it deeper and deeper. And the moment that tweet came out and there was the run on the bank and yeah. things just kind of that house of cards just ended up collapsing. Yeah. But the exchange was just kind of pulled down with it, even though it was actually doing pretty yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, so you're right in a way, right? They, they should have let Alameda just like split it. Yeah. Split it. yeah. And, then, and, like, and then FTX International would still be solvent right just let Alameda you yeah down. yeah but it's it seems it seems like the thing that got them into the trouble was that when Alameda started to end up having the trouble that they yeah. took some of the customer funds to try and bail it out hoping that they yeah. could end up making it back which is where the whole Ponzi uh component seems to have played out I guess uh yeah. still more information continues to come yeah, out yeah, in more information 
So let's 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 switch gears a little bit and, and talk about the future of synergy. So when currently you have Bitcoin and Ethereum as the as the, as the sole assets that can be exchanged can be traded on the exchange. What do you see as the future? Does it open up to to a broader range of assets, uh, NFTs? There's a whole variety of tokens and so forth that could that could that are digital assets within within the environment. What's yeah. the future for Synergy? Well, definitely uh, to list more tokens. I think uh, based on what we suggested to the SC uh, early last year. We hope that uh, they would uh, immediately have a blanket approval for the top 20 crypto assets to be listed on the local exchanges, mm-hmm. excluding stable coins, right? So like I mentioned earlier, stable coins uh, is under the purview of the central bank. Okay. And in order for them to protect the sovereignty of the Malaysian ringgit, they have decided to not allow stable coins to be traded uh, yet. Um, I think some right. of when, when you when you say when you say stable coins and, and the central bank, it's referring to stable coins that are uh, priced in US dollar. Ringgit. Yes, like, priced to US dollar. So, ah, so, so even uh, even like USDC is is not permitted in Malaysia. You you can't trade it peer to peer. So so if let's just say uh, you wanted to buy hundred USDT from me, I have inventory. I can sell to you, right? Yeah. But you're not allowed to offer it on the exchange level. That means uh, uh, you can trade it amongst yourself peer to peer. You can't actually offer it on a, on an exchange, uh, a regulated exchange such as this one. So you can't find like USDT slash MYR. It, it yeah. doesn't exist on any of the local exchanges. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I was I was I was thinking at first whether or not like doing a stable coin that's focused on the ringgit. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that one different because that one is sort of CBDC, right? It, it will, yeah. The person who's who's issuing it will be the central bank. So that mm. one, I'm sure. If they do it, like it will gain mass adoption. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, to be honest with you, it's it's not a huge leap, and 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 maybe I'm I'm lacking on some of the technicalities, but yeah. so launch a CBDC is is not a huge leap from some of the e-wallets because it's all it's a lot of those transactions are settling virtually anyways. You're not transacting in physical cash, yeah. and so yeah. the the the. The necessary leap to go from one to the other doesn't seem yeah. as cavernous. It uh, doesn't seem as wide uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, I to mean, accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, from an e-wallet perspective, it's actually like we buy send you a hundred ringgit through touch and go e-wallet, right? The, the money is actually not really transferred, right? It's just a, rec- a database record that changed, right? Meaning now yeah. a hundred more, I got hundred less. So if they replace that with uh, let's say MYRT, right, mm. CPC. It just means that it's not just a database record anymore. It's uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's everything is recorded on the blockchain, now, You know, and yeah. everyone can see all the transaction between all the different wallets, etc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think the one the one thing that I've always heard people comment when it comes to CDCs is is it's it's on a blockchain, but it's a private blockchain owned by the by that's that's run by the yeah. government. So I've heard yeah. people kind of comment that. A lot of the countries that were early adopters yeah. are also ones where their home currencies were yeah. not very stable. So you see it in hyperinflation markets of like yeah. far flung like Zimbabwe, Venezuela, yeah. these these sort of places. Yeah. And so it always raised the question of would you would you put the faith into having the the keys to and the control of a private blockchain yeah. uh, to those those same authorities? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I guess, I guess that's a, that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could. Yeah, we could it's end up. I mean, of course, if they can give some sort of like assurance, right? Like mm-hmm. FDIC insured, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see some of those components come yeah. into the space of uh, insurance associated with the. In, you know, in, this, in the states, we have depository insurance. We also have a thing called SIDC for brokerage yeah. brokerage accounts as well, in yeah. order to ensure in case something happens with that entity. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't really seen any any, and maybe I'm uh, I'm I'm just not keen to it. But yeah. I haven't really seen that that level of innovation come into the crypto space as of yet. Yeah, yeah crypto not not yet. Um, but I see it on e wallet. Like I think uh, Touch and Go has just. Uh, insurance thing, right? Where, where when you have funds on the e-wallet, it's insured up to a certain amount. So in crypto, I think eventually uh, it will come, right? Like I think uh, BitGo, right, as mm. one of the the um, one of the the big wallet and custodian in California, they have insurance up to I think 100 million of client assets uh, by Lloyd's of London. So I think over time, more insurance company will take a look at this and say, hey, look, there's probably a premium that we can charge here. And as long as we know that uh, certain checks and balances are in place, we can, you know, offer uh, uh, an insurance to these guys. Uh. Okay. Okay. So, so let, let, let me wrap up with, with one more question yeah. before we do yeah. the kind of the closing set. When you, when you look forward and you're kind of planning out the future of the exchange, obviously there's 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 question in regards to the ability to launch new tokens onto yeah. the platform and so forth. But when you look at your own activity within what you actually have direct control over, what what are the key components when you look at it and say, in order for us to be successful, we need to get these things correct. What are those things that you see as like the critical success factors for you? Um, definitely, uh, definitely uh, transparency, right? Transparency is one of those things. I think uh, if you look, if you go to coingecko.com, mm-hmm. uh, there's... Uh, maybe a, a list of about 10 exchanges which, which have done that proof of audit, right? Uh, a lot still haven't done it. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if this will be imposed on us, but but this is something that I personally want to do, right? Meaning we, we disclose what we have in terms of client assets to, to, to on, on the platform, let's say. The thing is this though, I mean, there's always going to, you know, you disclose that, you're also telling people like how big you are or how small you are, you know? Mm. So, so it benefits the international players which have huge, large user base, right? But for a smaller player like us, uh, you you also almost have to hope in a way that people see that transparency as you trying to play your part, right? In in in, in growing the business. Huh? So 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 that's one thing. Uh, and yeah, I mean that's transparency is definitely one of them. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let, let, let me do my standard closing questions here. Sure. Uh, so the first one is, what is a tech tool that yeah. you just can't live without? Uh, cloud. <laughs> cloud services. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have internal service, so cloud, cloud is important. Yeah, yeah, de- yeah. yeah def- definitely. <laughs> last, last question here. So if you were to talk to another founder that's just getting started out and yeah. maybe in the crypto space, maybe in a different yeah. space, uh, but they're just getting started out, what is the biggest piece of advice that you could offer another founder? Be very lean. Be very, very lean. Because uh, I think in, in the world of uh, startups, right, uh, an idea is, is 1%. You know, the, the work is actually 99%. So you will be... 
if you're not lean enough, you know, you, you can't, you, I mean, you, you just, you won't, have the, you won't have the runway to succeed, right? So look at the successful companies in the space, people like CoinGecko, Bobby Ong have, have always stressed, right? You, you've got to bootstrap, you've got to be lean, you know, like this, this is one, one, one way to, to, to withstand this industry, right? Because uh, we're not in Silicon Valley, so you're not going to get a billion, billion dollar check from, you know, Anderson Horowitz, etc. You know, you're in Malaysia, you know, so, so you, you have to be realistic about that. Uh, and also, I think if you choose to be in a forward space like crypto, there's a lot of like ups and downs, right? Because it's, it's evolving very quickly, right? So, so, so if you're in crypto, you have to be prepared for, for that, that ups and downs because it evolves very quickly. Uh, in probably other fintech, insurtech, etc., you won't have this sort of volatility or it will be more stable, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I, I like the aspect of one, the, the idea is 1%. Uh, because so 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 many so many folks kind of fall into this aspect of like they 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 ruminate on the idea for so long, but it's the execution, yeah. and yeah. the only way that you can execute is being lean and making sure that you're getting a solid ROI on the resources that you're that you're putting into it. Yeah. Because yeah. like you like you said, <laughs> we're it's we're in Malaysia right here, yeah. and so it's not yeah. the it's not the huge pockets. Although yeah. I hope, like I hope, Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon and those guys are listening <laughs> in here and saying, "Ah, oh, maybe we should be putting uh, billions of capital into." Uh, come into here, come here. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there are, I mean, you if you need to set up something this part of the world, we are exactly halfway across the world, right? So this is uh, make Malaysia the hub, right? We have progressive regulators, we have affordable workforce which is multilingual you know and it's it's a great place to live i mean you know like it's a great place to live and where you're at in penang has probably some of the best food that you can imagine <laughs> yeah <laughs> good street food good street food <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly awesome calvin this is this has yeah. been this has been a fantastic conversation we, we we dug into a lot of material here i really yeah. appreciate you taking the time don't mention thanks for having me again kevin yeah. thank you so much yeah thank you all. Alright, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.